You're listening to a Centro Church podcast. Have you been enjoying this sort of unofficial series that Pastor John's been doing on, on the church? I have. This, <laughs> they applauded as one man. <laughs> and and we, we're going to continue sort of in that vein this morning by, by looking at, at the church outside of this building, the church in the wild, the church untamed, the church at work, the church out in the streets. That's a place where the church ends up. About eight years ago, I went to a concert at Suncorp Stadium to see you 2 but I was actually more interested in the Support Act, who was a, a, a hip-hop performer from Brooklyn called Sean Carter, who identifies as Jay-Z. You might know him. Maybe 5% of the crowd here might, might know him. Pastor John went to the same concert. He went the night before, but he wasn't too keen on Jay-Z, so he nipped out for a Chico roll and a lemonade, which, which is the high point of cuisine at Suncorp Stadium, I've got to tell you. But I was, I loved Jay-Z and I was into his, you know, into his rhymes and that and he was, you know, there he was with his cap on backwards and all the bling, rings on every finger, you know, just a, just a great performer. Don't go and listen to his songs, you'll be offended. Um, but a, a short time after that, he came out with a song called No Church in the Wild. It, it said, human beings in a mob, what's a mob to a king? What's a king to a god? What's a god to a non-believer? who don't believe in anything. We make it out alive, all right, all right, no church in the wild. But his point being that at the extremes of culture where he lives, where hip-hop artists live, where a lot of people in the entertainment industry live, church can't reach them. That was his point. Does he have a point? Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. Certainly, that's not God's intention. God's intention is to be able to reach everyone. And some churches, there are some churches where not everyone is welcome. And to project that further, where some people groups are actively excluded. They can be places that aren't readily accessible to all people. But that was never God's intention. He said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That's all people groups. That's everybody. So no one was to be excluded. He said, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore, because of that authority, and make disciples of all nations. And perhaps, perhaps, as churches, we've been pretty good at making disciples in nations, but not of nations. Islam is actively discipling at least five nations as we speak. I can't think of any that the Christian church is discipling, apart from the influence that we will by being salt and light in, inside the country. But God isn't silent about what he sees over cities and regions and nations. He has plans. He has dreams over cities. He has a dream over this city, city of Ipswich. Do you believe that? Yeah, good. A few of you do, that's good. Good. How about we, how about we all believe it? That would really help probably really helped the city council. And, and he, gives, he gives a couple of templates in the Bible 
for how this, this process actually works. And you know what? You know, you know what it's contingent on? You know what it really works on? It works on us. It works on his people in the city. So we're going to read, we're going to take a, a, a few verses from Isaiah 61. You'll recognize a lot of this passage, but it has a lot to do with the, the active church in the city. Okay, so let's just start reading at verse 1 of Isaiah 61. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Just stop there for a minute. When Jesus quotes this verse as he's, act, as he's announcing himself as the Messiah, he leaves that line out, the day of vengeance of the Lord. He leaves it out. There's a reason for that, and we'll get to that later. It goes on, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So he's talking about restoration of people. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to bind up the, those who have wounds. So he's talking about healing and restoring people. But then it shifts. Verse 4, And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolation of many Generation. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named priests of the Lord. They shall call you servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you'll have double honor, and instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall all possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. Now he's talking about restored people, restoring cities. But then it shifts again. Verse 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering, and I will direct their work in truth and make with them an everlasting covenant. And their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them, and they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. And then it concludes on a social justice slash legacy note what sort what sort of flavor are the people bringing to the city what kind of legacy will they leave this was written 700 years before jesus was born but by prophetic extension there's an implication for the new testament church it's a template of transformation that there would be restoration of people broken people broken people would be would be restored to a place where they can then rebuild the city and once that city is rebuilt we can begin reforming our communities we talk about God having a dream for our lives a plan for our lives and that's right but he has a dream and a plan for our city it involves us but it is planned from heaven he knows about it God dreams over geographical locations he's interested in cities but he's interested in individuals, of course. He loves us individually, one-on-one, but he also wants to see his kingdom established over cities. There's, there's a, a whisper of it in the Old Testament through the, 
the prophets. He talks about it all the time. He talks about rivers in the badlands, making, taking, us taking the gospel into places that are bad, into darkness, and changing them. It's what he talks about. And in Ezekiel, he talks about a river that flows from the temple out, out of the temple. And as it, goes, as it flows, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper, and it brings healing with it brings healing to, to wherever it flows. And I believe that's, there's pictures of us, pictures of the church going out from here and bringing healing to our community. And the good news for us is that we are the ex-broken that he uses to rebuild cities. Yeah? Are you ex-broken? I am. Yeah. I mean, I'm, in, I'm in recovery. So are we all. It's the ex-broken that he uses to build cities. So if you've ever been brokenhearted, captive or bound, if your life's been messed up or you've lived under addiction, you live under depression, then God has you in mind. He will transform you to make you a city builder. When it talks about rebuilding cities, that doesn't mean we're going to embark on a construction project. You know, we're not going to build bridges or something like that. We're going to rebuild the community, the infrastructure in the community to to let God's purposes come about. But there's an even more definitive template than this, and it's found in the book of 1 Samuel. It talks about King David. We all love David, David and Goliath. David slays the giant. But David, in between slaying the giant and becoming king, he went through quite a deal of trauma. And that trauma attracted people to him who were also in trauma. And they gathered in something called the Cave of Adullam. Now, the Cave of Adullam has a bad rap, but really it's, it, it was actually a training ground for David's leaders. And, and, and I was Googling Cave of Adullam the other day, and somebody's cottoned on to this. There's the Cave of Adullam Leadership Academy. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to go there? <laughs> Cave of Adullam. Yeah. And uh, anyway, we're going to read just a quick verse to give you the idea of what, what the cave of Adullam was all about. 1 Samuel chapter 22, uh, verses 1 and 2 in the message. It says this, David got away and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and others associated with his family heard where he was, they came down and joined him. Not only that, but all who were down on their luck came around. Losers, vagrants, and misfits of all sorts, David became their leader. There were about 400 in all. So here's a similar progression. David gathers to himself all the losers, vagrants, and misfits. Do we have any of those here? Okay. Down on your luck. So there's this similar progression. David gathers these and they join him in the cave of Adullam. But they don't just gather there and air their differences, they become somebodies. Some of them become what the Bible calls mighty men. This is David's officer cast in his army. And his, his leaders and his administrators all came, well, not all of them, but most of them came from the cave of Adullam because they were his people. It says, people down on their luck, losers, misfits, and vagrants brought a new kingdom to Israel with sweeping religious and social reforms. They go and they capture Jerusalem. They take a new city. They make it a capital. They make it a, a, 
a neutral capital. They don't align because it's not aligned with any tribe. So David is on a, on a journey of non-exclusion. He, he takes a capital that is not aligned with any tribe. And then, then he brings in a form of worship that hasn't been seen before in Israel. Hasn't been seen before because in the, under the old system, the only person who could go before the Ark of the Covenant, which was the presence of God, was the high priest. And that on one day a year, shuffling in, scared stiff that he'd made all the right sacrifices, carrying a bowl of blood, and if he didn't get it right, he would be struck dead. David says, nah, forget all that. We're going to put the ark out here. And we're all going to stand in front of it. We're all going to worship. And that was his tabernacle, the tabernacle of David. It was something different. It was where David left the ark in full view of the worshippers. So it was a non-exclusive worship zone. That was the principle that David had in his heart. He understood God's nature. And so he called something that was from a, a... dispensation that was ahead into that time and what does that sound like to you sounds like the new testament yeah where no one is excluded so david says we'll just put the ark here no veil everybody's welcome so he establishes a kingdom and an inclusive worship center based on the principles that have been formed in him see we have to own our city every day We have to own it. You know why we don't own it? Because we don't think God's that big. We don't. We're just trying to stay ahead, to just maintain our own walk with him. But God is bigger than that. He can give you a part to play. He can give you a vision for the city. Sometimes when we think in terms of God's kingdom coming to a city, we we think that what that means is that everyone in the city, or at least the majority, comes to know Jesus. That would be a good thing, but it doesn't necessarily equate to a changed community. I mean, yeah, a lot of times, we, you, know, you have fights in life groups where there's only six Christians. You know, imagine 60,000. But it, it actually can be statistically proven that it doesn't work like that. I saw a survey taken in about churches in the US where every good survey is done and and it it showed that the top 10 church attending cities per head of the population who had the most church attendance per head of the population had the bottom 10 social stats. So everybody being in church doesn't necessarily equate to a, a good city, a good place to live. So, inversely, those, those statistics work the other way. It, it didn't also show that the, the best cities to live in were the most unchurched. It didn't show that. But it showed that the top ten cities who had the most church attendance weren't great places to live in terms of, of crime and, and, uh, and bad social stats. But when you read passages like, God wants us to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a city on a hill... It it just hits me how much Jesus wants us to be the primary influences of our city, the primary influences as individuals and as collectively as a church. And yeah, what we say, okay, he, he uses the broken to restore cities. What does that mean? That means that as we are in process, 
as we are moving towards wholeness, we might not be fully restored, we might be in process, that God can actually use that. He can, he can use your process to change the circumstances in your workplace or your school or your uni, wherever it is you are. He can use your process. As people see you go through things and, and handle it well and, and grow in God and grow in, in character, then that equates to you influencing the circumstances around you. Can you see that? This week, even the most committed Christian will only spend 3% of their time in church or church programs. That's it. So it stands to reason that the full outworking of our Christian walks will take place in other arenas. Yeah? So we, what we do here is just a small part of our weekly Christian walk. We will live it out in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighbourhoods, in our sporting clubs, wherever we are, that process of our lives will be under view. I want to take you through a, a, a little passage in the New Testament. In John's Gospel, there is a number of women who have a significant part to play, but we don't ever get to learn their names. I want to talk to you about a woman this morning who is revered as a saint in the Eastern Orthodox Church. She led a revival in her country, and uh, she was held in, in similar esteem to the apostles in the day. And she was eventually taken before the emperor of Rome and martyred. Her name is Fatina, Fatina, but we know her as the woman of the well in Samaria. And her story is, is a huge one because she was an extremely broken individual that led to a city being transformed individually was the catalyst to a city being and and a region being transformed. It was probably in the last three weeks of Jesus' earthly ministry that he happened to pass through Samaria. And he he goes to this, this well that Jacob built back in the day and he sits down and he comes across this Samaritan woman. Because she was this broken human being who had no identity, she, she gets this. Jesus comes in and stands beside her and he's her God and he tells her where her life should be. He tells her where her life is, but he tells her where her life should be because he knows where it should be. He brings a sovereign moment to her and she recognises hope. He says to her, you're not invisible. You're somebody. You were created for a purpose and I'm here to realign you with that purpose. And we'll pick up the, the story in... Verse 9, Jesus is sitting down at the edge of the well and the woman comes up to get, a, to, to get water and he asks her for a drink. So John chapter 4, verse 9, in the Passion Translation, it says this, Surprised, she said, why would a Jewish man ask a Samaritan woman for a drink of water? Jesus replied, if you only knew who I am and the gift that God wants to give you, you'd ask me for a drink and I would give to you living water. The woman replied, but sir, you don't even have a bucket and this well is very deep. So where do you find this living water? Do you really think that you are greater than our ancestor Jacob who dug this well and drank, it from, drank from it himself along with his children and livestock? Jesus answered, if you drink from Jacob's well, you'll be thirsty again and again. But if anyone drinks from the living water that I give them, they will never thirst again and forever will be satisfied. 
For when you drink the water that I give you, it will become a gushing fountain of life, a fountain of the Holy Spirit, springing up and flooding you with endless life. The woman replied, let me drink that water so I'll never be thirsty again and won't have to come back to here to draw water. Jesus said, go get your husband and bring him here. Whoops. But I'm not married, the woman answered. That's true, said Jesus, for you've been married five times and now you're living with a man who is not your husband. You have told the truth. The woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me this, why do our fathers worship God here on this nearby mountain, but your people teach that Jerusalem is the place where we worship, which is right? Jesus responded, believe me, dear woman, the time has, has come when you won't worship the Father on a mountain, nor in Jerusalem, but in your heart. Your people don't really know the one they worship. We Jews worship out of experience, for it's from the Jews that salvation is made available. From here on, worshipping the Father will not be a matter of the right place, but with the right heart. For God is a spirit, and he longs to have sincere worshippers who worship and adore him in the realm of the spirit and truth. And then she goes back, takes that information to her city, and the city experiences a move of God. In the book of Acts, there are three big revivals that happen in her region, in Samaria, and it all came from this moment. So you might say to yourself, what can I do? What can I do? We'll go back and revisit that that chapter in a moment because there's things that we can extract from that. But you might say to yourself, what can I do? Let me just throw a few things out there that are happening in in the church at large just to stir up your imagination, your curiosity. One Christian in England has started a not-for-profit bank. It just, I mean, it's almost an oxymoron, isn't it? A not-for-profit bank. He started a not-for-profit bank to benefit his community. Now, I realise that probably not every one of us have the cash flow in our lives to do that, but bears thinking about Just stir up your, your, your mind. Um, there's a prophetic group that meets in California, in Vacaville, and they decided that they would, rather than do stuff in church, they would do stuff in the community. And they decided that they would look for missing children, that they would use their gift to find missing children. In the first couple of weeks, they found three missing children. I'm not talking about kids who just didn't come home from school. I'm talking about being abducted and missing for three years, that sort of thing. In the first three weeks, they found three kids. They were, they were given visions of, where the, where the, of, of car number plates and that sort of thing, and they managed to track them down. After they'd, after they'd found eight, the police said, we want to join with you and make a collective task force of your prophetic group and our officers to find missing persons in the community. That's what they did. Bill Gates isn't a Christian, but his wife Melinda is. And the Gates Foundation have poured $1 billion into cancer research. That's making their world better. So far, the Gates Foundation has eradicated 13 major diseases and 32 minor diseases. Again, we don't have the cash flow to do that, but it just to, just to stir your thinking. Let's bring it closer to home. A young lady in our church goes to New Age fairs and speak and preaches the gospel. She does it smart. She speaks about the five love languages, but she's out there 
making a difference. She's out there changing her world. Adam Price, who we all know, our kids' pastor, has a chance meeting with the education minister. And Adam gets in his face and says, the, the buildings at Raceview School are not good enough. And, he, and the education minister says, we can't have that. We, we'll, we'll fix that. And, uh, and, and, and currently, there is a building project that Adam is liaising with the school, with the, the government, to rebuild, virtually refurbish Raceview School. That's a great thing. Uh, it's improving our community. I could tell you other people who go, and go to pagan festivals like Burning Man and set up, set up uh, little areas where people can be prayed for and that sort of thing, who, who go to porn conventions and mother the, the, the porn stars who are there and lead them to Jesus. But that might be just a little bit of a stretch too far. But those sorts of things are happening in our world. That is the church expressing itself in the community. That is the church in the wild. Get it? The church in the wild. This is, this is a church domesticated. The church in the wild happens tomorrow. We've got to love Monday mornings as much as Sunday mornings, hey? Right. So let's get back to that passage in John 4 and see what we can glean from that, those few verses. Okay, so Jesus is in Samaria. Samaritans were a despised people group to the Jews. They were, they'd sort of, they had the Jewish Torah, they had the law, but they'd sort of taken it and given it their own twist. And they'd introduced some really strange things into it, and they didn't have any sort of moral compass in there. They were sort of like like the the Mormons of their day, you know, as the way we Christians think about the Mormon church. That was how the Jews felt about. Samaritans. The Jews said, you're not like us, you're something else. And they had this immorality issue, and so the Jews said, we're not going to associate with you, and any of us who do, it'll be taboo for them, and we're going to distance ourselves from you. That's what they said. So rabbis never associated themselves with Samaritans, but it's often the people group that is despised that brings revival. This happened, this actually happened on a large scale in my lifetime. In San Francisco in 1967, it's all known for those of you who are baby boomers, the Summer of Love. You would have heard of it. Hippies, up to 100,000 hippies descended on San Francisco and they became, because they were, most of them had no work, they needed food, they sort of bummed off people and they just made themselves a general nuisance. And so they became hated. They became a despised people group in that area. But... Into that steps the Holy Spirit. They were marginalised, couldn't couldn't be uh, couldn't be useful for the for the improvement of the city. But anyway, what happens is this pastor from Costa Mesa in California. He says he says I hate these people. I don't like them. They're smelly and they don't work. They're never coming to my church. But anyway, this this young hippie preacher, a guy called Lonnie Frisbee. What a name. Comes, comes to town. Now, Lonnie Frisbee is a hippie himself. His life, his life has been checkered right from the start. He was raped at the age of eight, lived a life of abuse, actively uh, engaged in the homosexual community at the age of 15, is having an acid trip one day and has an encounter with Jesus and is transformed and becomes this radical evangelist. 
and he comes to town and he comes to this guy's church. And this guy has a church of 200. Within months, it was over 1,000 inside the building and 1,000 outside in the car park. That's what happened through this, through this young man. He brought transformation to the, 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 a people group and that people group changed the face of church in America. It, Time magazine estimates that Lonnie Frisbee was involved in the salvation of between two and three million people. So this despised people group reshapes, reshapes the culture of American church. The despised people group in Samaria was the one that brought about revival. The point being that no one is excluded. That person, that group of people you think, they can never, ever be influenced. They can never, ever know Jesus. Everyone can. The second thing. So first of all, no one is excluded. The second thing is Jesus answers her questions. Too often, we want to answer a question that people aren't asking, like, like a theological progression of why we need God. People don't want to know that. They want to know how to keep their kids off drugs. They want to know how to be a better parent. You know, they want to know how to make ends meet in their budget. Jesus answers her question before he goes on to tell her what she needs to know. There's a passage in the Old Testament where, where King Saul is about, to be, is about to be anointed king. And his father sent him out looking for a couple of missing donkeys, sort of a, a bit of a low-level errand for someone who's going to be king. And he goes out looking for these donkeys, and he comes to the prophet Samuel. What the prophet Samuel has for him is an anointing to be king, a calling to lead Israel. And, but what the prophet Samuel does know is that Saul's mind is on other things, the missing donkeys. And so first... He answers his question. He tells him that the donkeys have been found. He tells him because he knows, because he's a prophet. He tells him that the donkeys have been found, and he says to him, come back tomorrow, and I'll tell you all that God has in his heart for you. So first of all, we must answer people's questions. Not what we think they need to know. We need to answer what they need to know, what they want to know. So that's the second thing. The third thing is keep judgment out of the equation. Jesus merely states the facts. He says, for you have been married five times and now you're living with a man who is not your husband. You have told the truth. He actually gives her a compliment. You've told the truth. He takes judgment out of the equation. We say, but God will judge. Yeah, he will. He'll judge anything that interferes with love. That's what he judges. Jesus doesn't judge. He just merely states the facts and he tells her her state. And from her state, she realizes there's something wrong. Because he doesn't judge, Jesus can then, point four, Jesus provides unseen options. He's able to give her hope. Without judgment, Jesus can introduce options into the situation. He faces a similar situation a few chapters later when a mob brings to him a woman who is caught in the act of adultery. And they say, we've got to stone her. The law of Moses says she should be stoned. And so Jesus is faced with option A, 
which is, yeah, let them stone her, or option B, say, no, you shouldn't, and they stone him as a heretic. But Jesus, again, doesn't judge either party. He introduces option C, which is, okay, the one of you who's without sin casts the first stone. And they go, "Ah, Jesus, foiled again. And then he introduces option D to the lady, go and sin no more. So because he doesn't judge, he's able to introduce these options into, into her situation and saves the whole thing. Yeah, that is so, so much wisdom involved in that. And when you, when you leave judgment out of the equation and you're able to introduce options, that's wisdom. That's wisdom. When King Solomon asked God for wisdom, he actually didn't, didn't ask, he didn't use those words. He asked for an understanding heart. And the Hebrew word for that is shema. And that means to be able to process like God processes. And that's how, we, that's how we need to process situations, like God processes. Leave the judgment out. Introduce options. The fifth thing, and, and this is an important one, don't discount the supernatural. Fatine's encounter with Jesus turns on a supernatural insight that he has, a word of knowledge. When you move towards darkness, when you engage culture, the power of God is the best weapon you have. Jesus said, and it said in that passage that we read earlier, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me. Don't ever think that that that, uh, passage in the Bible, freely you have received, freely give, is talking about salvation. Because what goes before it is this. It says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, cleanse lepers. Freely you've received, freely give. And what that's saying, I mean, you know, probably tomorrow you're not going to rock up at work and cleanse the lepers, but you're going to look for a supernatural element, something that is from God that you can take, hear from God, and introduce into a situation. That is the supernatural edge that can bring kingdom to this city. God said that he would, in these times, work through people, visions and dreams. I don't think, I think, while I think that that is accurate, visions and dreams are certainly a portal that he will communicate to us through. I don't think it's restricted to that. I think it's, I think he wants to work through people who are visionary and can dream over things, who can imagine a better city, who can imagine a better infrastructure, who can imagine a better workplace, who can imagine a better sporting club, who can imagine these things. People who are visionary and can dream over situations. They're they're people who God will work through. Imagination. Imagine a better whatever it is you're in. Imagine how it can be better. That is how the kingdom can be established in our city. Can Can we dream over a city? Can we bring the kingdom to our city? Can we fight for a people here that's a bride, that's an inheritance, that's a reward in the future? The idea here that God is, is doing something new to bring a stream of healing to people who haven't experienced it before, to go out and bring, for us to go out and bring refreshing to dry places, places of indifferent value, streams in society that remain untouched by the reign of the kingdom. 
Our society needs cultural change on so many levels, yeah? In so many levels, in government and policy and education, in the entertainment industry, in sport, in workplaces. And those places won't change if we take the mindset that those places to change, the people there have got to come to church. We have to take church to them. We have to be the church in the wild. See, I believe that God has strategically called individuals and he has spoken things through individuals that he is going to do, that he's going to do in our city. I mean, if we trace this back, we can see quite a bit of God's hand in the past. I want to tell you a story, and we'll finish with this if the, uh, the musicians would like to join me. Take your time. See, God is a storyteller. He, he really wants to build a story in our lives and build a story in our city. And a short while ago, I started following this guy on Twitter called Matt Lockett. You've probably never heard of him. Um, what I do when I follow someone on Twitter is I want to see who they follow. And I found out that Matt Lockett followed a guy called Will Ford, another name that probably doesn't mean anything to you. I found out that the two of these guys were both Christians and they were in ministry together. And about 13 years ago, Matt Lockett had a dream that he had to turn up at the Lincoln Memorial on Martin Luther King Day. And so he does. He goes there and he meets this guy called Will Ford, who also had a dream to turn up at the Lincoln Memorial on Martin Luther King Day. So these two guys meet, and they shake hands, and they, they have a chat, and, and they, they talk a bit, and they find out that they're, they're both into social change. They're, they're both in ministry, but they both in, want to introduce social change. So they get together. They become partners in ministry. Now, uh, uh, Matt Lockett is an is a, uh, Anglo-Saxon descendant and Will Ford is an African-American. Will Ford has in his possession a family heirloom, which is a kettle. And this kettle is, was back from the slavery days. And his ancestors would use this kettle to pray, to pray for their, their, their nation, to pray for the abolition of slavery. What they would do is the, the slave owners didn't want the slaves to pray. They didn't want them to have church. They didn't want them to get a sniff of a better future. They didn't want them to have hope. And so they banned praying and they banned church attendance or having church in their, on their, their land. And so what the slaves would do is they would get this kettle and they would prop it up on bricks and they would stick their heads under the kettle and pray into the kettle. And that would muffle the sound and nobody would, nobody would know that they were praying. And they were, they were praying for the end of the Civil War, for the, for the Union to win and for slavery to be abolished. And, and these two guys travel around America, this, this actual kettle. There it is, up on the screen. Now, th- here's the really wild part. Matt Lockett decides to, to pursue his ancestry and he finds out in his ancestry that that the Civil War actually ended on his ancestors' property. And, and on that property, they, they owned slaves. It was in the South, and they owned slaves. And he found out that his ancestors actually owned Will Ford's ancestors. 
And so they were actually on opposing sides, but had come together. And when you, when you think about this, it, it's, it's a great story. But when you give it some context, when you put it up against the background of Martin Luther King's famous speech, I have a dream, and look at this particular phrase. Can we have it up on the screen? There it is. There can be things that God releases over a nation, over a city, that he releases prophetically that come to pass and that people actually live out in their in their two unsuspecting guys have both have the same dream both turn up together and they represent something that was released prophetically over a nation decades before and it comes to fruition under the hand of God God is dreaming over our city folks he is certainly dreaming over our city he has a dream of a better city the best version of Ipswich that can be Do you believe that? I believe it. Thank you for listening to this podcast.